Welcome to the Friendly Ramp Podcast. My name is Seth Friend and welcome to Season 2, Episode 8. I'm here with Dr. Peter Link. Dr. Peter Link serves as an Associate Professor of Christian Studies. He received his Doctorate in Philosophy and Biblical Studies from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and started teaching at CSU in 2012. His ministry and teaching focus is on the interpretation of the Old Testament, hermeneutics, and Biblical Hebrew. He wants his students to know first that Moses and the prophets wrote to them and all of us, and second, that they wrote to them and all of us about Jesus. His dissertation uh, analyzed and interpreted Deuteronomy 29.30, and his research remains focused on the interpretation of the Pentateuch. He is a regular leader of the College of Christian Studies quarterly epic Bible study teacher training sessions, and has enjoyed preaching and writing, excuse me, preaching and serving in pulpit supply in multitude of low country churches. Link and his wife Becky and their five children are now members, and he is a pastor at Crossroads Community Church. Dr. Link, how are you, sir? That's good. I'm glad to be here. Thank you, Seth. This is very kind, and and uh, you know, it's just great to see you again. Well, absolutely. Likewise, you are a, a big influence in my life um, when it comes to my love for the Old Testament. You kind of sent me on the trajectory of wanting to understand it in a deeper way. And I think one of the biggest things you taught me was for every New Testament point, there's an Old Testament picture. <laughs> And, well, I don't know if I put the word every there, but you're right. I mean, the the Old Testament and the New Testament are both primarily describing the triune God and therefore both describing uh, Jesus and the gospel. And how the Old Testament does it is not the same as the New Testament. The, the method, uh, the manner in which it's written is unique. But in the end, when you, when you, when you isolate with the Old Testament's problem that it's addressing and the solution that it, it proposes, there's only one remaining answer, and that's this Messiah and all the various titles that the Old Testament gives to this person. So, so I, and, and most of my work, just as, as you know, uh, is built upon the, the shoulders of John Selhammer. Um, I don't blame him for all the things that I get wrong, but, uh, anything that I've gotten right, whatever it may be, has been from spending time with him and the other guys who studied with him. Uh, with, with me, so. Absolutely. And you, you turned me to, to John Salehammer and he was a uh, incredible, one of the books I recommend to people is the Pentateuch is narrative, but he has another yeah. work. That's what was, what's his other uh, bigger work. It's kind of the old Testament. So the, the last one that came out was the meaning of the Pentateuch. Yeah. Um, that was a bit more complex and really uh, the content of it was very, uh, drawn from the lectures he'd been giving those of us who were students in his final years. Um, there's a lot of typos in it, unfortunately. It uh, needed to be edited a little bit better. Uh, really, the first book of his that I read was Introduction to Old Testament Theology. Yes, that's the one. That's the one I was thinking. And that's the one that kind of wrecked my world, and I was like, um, you know, uh, I got to rethink how I'm doing this. Yeah, absolutely. I have, uh, you know, I'm a, I don't know if you knew this or not, but I'm a part-time teacher at a private school. I'm teaching the New Testament. And um, so right. we are... Uh, the first, I would say, month, I had to like remind them, I'm like, hey, you are at an advantage that you are on the other side of the Bible, but you're at a disadvantage <laughs> that you are 2,000 years removed from New Testament culture. And it's like, just imagine how far we actually are removed from the Pentateuch itself. Now, for the listener, the Pentateuch, when we say that, it's the first five books of the Bible, which... This is something Salehammer taught and something you're passionate about that I want to talk about as a whole is that we need to read the first five books of the Bible as one book. Yeah, that's right. So when we use the word book, we got to be flexible. I mean, uh, you know, book nowadays could mean a, a Kindle edition, a hardback, a paperback. Uh, we're not talking about a, a particular technological thing. We're talking about something that's written 
to be read together. Mm. Um, you know, it was written on scrolls, and the, and the scrolls were meant to be read together. There, There is an intent attached to that. And so, yeah, I, I think one of the keys to reading the, the Torah well, the Pentateuch, I, I typically call it the Torah because that's actually, in my mind, mm. the more biblical term. Right. But scholars call it the Pentateuch. Pentateuch does not mean five books. It means a five-fold or a five-volume book. So the same way that the Lord of the Rings is um, uh, not really three books, Books, or you could argue six books, by the way, since each of the books has books inside of it. Yeah, you can see the definition of book is, is fluctuating there. But you know that when you read the Lord of the Rings, you've got to start off at the beginning of the Fellowship of Rings. You can't just jump into two towers. You can't just jump into the Return of the King. And you really, once you finish the Fellowship of the Ring, you got to keep going. Hmm. And so, a book is something that has a particular beginning, middle, and ending. It it sticks together. The author has a purpose in it. It addresses a particular problem. In in biblical books, they they convey a solution. I mean, there's human books may not convey a solution, but but right. uh, biblical books do, and that solution is always going to be a God solution, a gospel solution, uh, a Jesus solution. The problem we have in reading the Pentateuch is <clears throat> that we want to take um, how we understand Jesus. And impose it upon the Pentateuch rather than letting the Pentateuch, the Torah, teach us. And the reason why that's hard is because most of us have not been trained to spend time in and to think about it as a whole. And so you can have four major genres there. You can have narrative text, you can have poetic text, you can have law codes and genealogies. And you can you can have subgenres off of that, but those are really the four main genres. And, and what Salhammer does a tremendous job of doing is showing us the strategies behind how these different uh, genres work together. Um, and, and you should know that many scholars absolutely disagree with this pattern of narrative poetry up along. They think it's a, uh, and, and for those who haven't heard, what that means is as you're reading a narrative, there tends to be a poem that comes along. The poem interprets the narrative. And then there's a little epilogue and then the pattern kind of repeats itself. And this occurs in little micro details, but most importantly, it, it occurs on these major scenes, these major poetic scenes. Mm. And in these poet, poetic scenes, you have this discussion of the end of the day, right? Mm. So that in the Pentateuch, you've got an author who is holding the whole thing together by linking together narrative text, inserting poetry, then a little epilogue, and then another narrative section, and so forth, all the way to the end. And it it explains the structure of the whole and when it shows up, for example, in, in within those pieces, for example, in Genesis 2, 1 and 2, a lot of narrative, and then you get to uh, Adam describing his wife, and you got that poem there, right? And that's mm-hmm. a poem. Yeah. And it's showing you the, the most important part of the creation. Uh, behold, this one, you know, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, all that stuff. So that you have uh, an insight into the most important part of the creation. It's not the sun, moon, and the stars, but it's humanity. And specifically, it's the, it's the depiction of humanity as, as as husband and wife, man and woman. And the beauty that emerges out of that becomes foundational to the rest of the Bible itself. So there's a lot going on. And and, and, and I think when people read these various uh, things like the, the Torah, we can latch on to a piece of it. But I think we have to do the work of keep rereading, reading it in big chunks, paying attention to details. And that just takes time. I mean, it really does. That's the only answer got to spend time you got to think about it and by god's spirit i think you can see that there are things that happen in the narratives of genesis for example that are directly connected to the law codes hmm. and the law codes directly reflect upon what you've been reading in genesis 
Like, those, do you think it's dreaded a good idea? law codes? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, nobody likes the law codes, right? Or, uh, but but they're an important part of the book, right? Absolutely. And, and um, they are often little stories within themselves, um, different kinds of law codes, but not only situational law codes, but law codes are directly answering the sins from the prior sections throughout most of the Pentateuch, not all of it. Um, but you can see a pattern that God is answering sin with these laws, but the sins never, ever produce faith. They fail to produce faith. They fail to solve the problem that is central to the book, which is man's death and God's presence. Now, I didn't say God's a failure. I didn't say the laws were failure. In fact, the laws are good and right. The Mosaic Covenant is good and right. But what is it good for? That's the question. Yeah. And what it's good for is, is a long discussion we spend a lot of time on, but it's not presented as a solution to the core problem. So when when uh, one of one of the guys who studied under Selhammer, his name is Seth Postel, he's a tremendous scholar. He's got a book called Adam is Israel. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Adam is Israel, and he shows that Adam's story is a um, is like a, a, an introduction to Israel's story that they're. Israel's time uh, with God and Adam's time with God are written in such a way that Adam's story prepares you to read Israel's well. And Israel's story, where you spend most of your time, kind of draws out, like, oh, this is mm. what was happening there. Wow. It's not, yeah, it's kind of like an uh, Adam's story is kind of an overture. And then the bulk of the book <laughs> is focused on Israel and Israel's inability to stay near God by laws, which is, of course, Adam and Eve. And I think. I think that's the thing that kind of just blows the modern mind away, especially for the average person that has not done much theological training is all of the intricate poetical details that go into the Old Testament. You know, I've just, I think I've read through the Pentateuch maybe three or four, maybe five times since college, you know, just trying to make sure to go through and reread it and really try to appreciate it. And every time I go through, I'm like, I know I'm missing countless details because I'm working at a, you know, what, six, seven thousand, eight year, eight thousand year advantage or disadvantage, excuse me, in terms of the context and the culture. You know, these people are living a completely different culture and lifestyle than I was. And I know I'm missing uh, details in this. Yeah, but see, the key to getting the details is not being an ancient person. Okay. Almost all ancient people got it wrong. Right. Uh, so I'll steal Selhammer's illustration. Go for it. He talked about a little boy, Yitzhak, who was going through the Red Sea. His dad's holding his hand. Two million Israelites going through the Red Sea, and and the father uh, is holding Yitzhak's hand, and, and, and Yitzhak says, hey, Dad, what does all this mean? And the father's answer is, I don't know. Wait for the book. <laughs> so what we have is not only what happened, but the book gives us what it means. Mm. And just like Adam struggled in the garden to heed God's voice, though he knew it, just like Israel struggles to follow all these laws we independent to, God confronts humanity with our sin. And one of the challenges we have in reading the Torah well is our refusal to understand that Adam's and Israel's sins are our own. I don't mean the particular sins, like you read about whatever happened between Noah and Ham, meaning that you did that. What I mean is that at the essence of all sin is a human heart that is rebelling against God. And, um, when I see Israel's sin in that text, that is not just a random story. I'm learning about how God relates to humanity by how he related to Israel. And so this is what makes the middle part of the Pentateuch, the middle part of the Torah, so significant, is you're watching your father 
take care of your big brother. And you might have particular, and you do have particular sin issues that are different. But what do you learn when you listen to those law codes? That God cares about every part of life. Mm. That you need to be applying the greater laws into the lesser laws, one might say. And this idea of applying is very important because you haven't really heeded God's call to you try to live it out. And when you live it out, you're going to fail like Israel did. But that doesn't change God's good direction, God's wisdom, and his ability to lift you up. So all the laws come down to one law. We call the Shema. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul. Um, and and, and it, by the way, it frustrates me when, when when pastors reference that text and they reference what the gospels say about it and they ignore that that's in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6. 6 yep. 5. So uh, that's actually where Jesus would point you back to. Right. So absolutely. just saying, just saying. Yeah, it goes back but, to the Pentateuch every time. But you read that and you and you go, well, what does it mean to love God? Well, the Ten Commandments draw out how to apply the idea of loving God. And of course, this is where we get the first half of the Ten Commandments focused on our relationship with God, and the second half of the Ten Commandments, our relationship with each other. But then how how should we apply all those things? Because that's really not enough information. I'm not really sure uh, if all I have are laws, but, but the book not only gives you the laws, it gives you commentary, it gives you relationships. And when you get to the particular law codes, you're seeing how God wanted Israel to apply his laws in their situation so that you can apply his goodwill in your situation. And in the end, what we're asking is, is it possible for man to live with God? Mm-hmm. And the Torah gives a very, I think, a very clear answer, but it's not, it's not stated like an epistle. And I don't think the greatest obstacle is the distance between us and time. And let me tell you a couple okay. reasons why that is. One, the Bible can be understood. The Torah can be understood because it has been understood. Mm, that's good. You stand in a long conversation over thousands of years of wrestling with this book, 3,400 years, however long it's been. Mm-hmm. Um, you, pick, I don't know, you pick whatever number you want. I don't care. Yeah. Um, and, and this long conversation has had times where it was better and, and not so great. That's true. But hidden in that conversation was the people of God being moved by the Spirit to understand it and to pass it on from generation to generation. Because remember, the Torah says, hey, your son's going to ask you about these things. And you and you cannot obey God if you're not preparing the next generation to understand God rightly. So I think this is what the Torah does. It, it takes us into this world, this, this narrative world, which is the real world, which if we could just think like the Torah thinks, then we would, we would understand everything around us. And so... Um, The Torah covers from the very beginning of time and creation, and I'm going to argue, which is not a majority view, that it also covers the very end of time, most particular Deuteronomy 33 in this discussion of the end of the days. But in Deuteronomy 33, you have the very good ending, not only for Israel living in the land with God, it's as if the Garden of Eden and God's presence that that was on one mountain is now on all the mountains. And not only is Israel there, but the nations are there in Deuteronomy 33, 18 and 19, and they are worshiping God as his priest. So it's not only the ending of Israel's story, it's the ending of Adam's story. Hmm. And so the book is written with later generations in mind. It anticipates the very problems you're describing. But the way to shortcut it is not to impose our modern mindset on it. It's to join the ancient conversation, get into the narrative world. And one of the things that helps us do that is that the rest of the Old Testament already does that. For example, if you read the prophet Isaiah, um, almost every scholar is going to agree that a lot of the material in the book of Isaiah is connected to the uh, the other great poem at the end of the, of the of the Torah, which is Deuteronomy 32. 
I would also argue that Deuteronomy 33 is connected, but I'm, that's not as, as a claim that everyone would agree with. Okay. So when when the I would argue, not everybody, <laughs> I would argue that the Book of Isaiah, at least in part, is a 66 chapter explanation of what Deuteronomy 32 and 33 meant. Wow. Rather than thinking about the rest of the Old Testament as the next part of the story, it is that. But the way to see the next part of the story is to not to go from the Torah, but to go within the Torah. Mm. And that's what the rest of the Old Testament does. So when you read it in the three-part Hebrew order, uh, at least one of the three-part Hebrew orders, you're going to begin the second part of the Old Testament with Joshua and the command to meditate upon this book of the Torah day and night. And the last part of the Old Testament, the writings, begins, at least in the order that I think is better, begins with the book of Psalms saying, there's somebody who's coming who does meditate upon the Torah day and night. And of course, I'm going to argue that that blessed man in Psalm 1 and 2 is the son of David, who is therefore Jesus. Everywhere Joshua failed, this one will triumph. So the entire Old Testament is positioned as as a commentary on the Torah, not to make you into ancient Israelite religion or into modern Judaism or uh, no, it, it's to, it's to draw you into the discussion about a central problem. Can I live with God? Hmm. See, man's death and God's presence is a central issue. It connects Adam's story, Israel's story and our story. Yeah. And even in the first verse of the Bible, the relationship between the creator and the creation is foundational. And the core question that flows out of this is, can the life of the creator show up in his creation? Hmm. And the answer is yes. And how's he going to do it? By his word and by his spirit. That's right. And I just love so much that you pointed out that, you know, this is, is it, it can make you confront your sin. You know, it calls you to be aware of your sin. And what I love about your story, Dr. Link, is that, you know, God called you to confront your sin later in life than most people living in the South, right? Like, tell me a little bit about your testimony. I I shared some of your degrees, but your students may know, I don't know, they may not know, but you went to, you know, Hook'em Horns, University of Texas to get your film degree. So tell me a little bit about your testimony. So I I will tell you, I... uh... Uh, it's interesting that when you transition, we talk about sinners, you immediately turn to me. But, you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll take that guilty as charged. Oh, man, I'm um, with you. I'm with you. But but here's what's, yeah, so I was born in a home that we went to church once a week. Um, it doesn't matter what tradition it was in, but and it was not the current tradition I'm in. But at any rate, I would go to church once a week. And when I became a teenager, I said, we don't believe this stuff. I'm out of here. And at 16, I became an atheist. Uh, but my, my parents, fortunately, were, were reasonably patient with me. Well, very patient with me now as a parent looking back on it. But uh, um, and I went uh, off to, uh, to college, University of Texas. I was a functional atheist uh, and I would, and I believed myself to be an atheist. Right. And what happened over time is you begin to walk in your ideas. You notice the mess that's surrounding you. And so I did go to study. Uh, I, I thought it was going to be an English major. I discovered they had a radio TV film degree and I could learn to be a screenwriter. And that sounded like a lot more fun to me. Uh, and, and so I began to work on that, made some friends. We, you know, we ended up actually later making a movie that went nowhere, made no money. But uh, we um, but I but I did that. And, and I uh, went off to, to L.A. to make myself into a great, successful screenwriter. And as you can tell, it was very. Oh, okay. it was a <laughs> uh, but out of that out of that chaos. What was really interesting is, is from the time that I had become an atheist, just a little bit before that, actually, my mother had been very ill. Um, she had a series of illnesses. They, they came upon her in, in multiple ways. And I was the oldest of four kids, and I was the only boy. And so my parents really wanted me to go out and conquer the world. And so I went off to college. And after college, 
to go out and conquer world and to to be a man and do all those do do all those things. Meanwhile, my my sisters, or at least two of my sisters in particular, were still at home. Uh, I have no sister close to me in age. She was off. Um, and, and so all this time that I'm describing, I've also got the reality of a very sick mother um, back back at home. So um, that was that was a very big uh, very big challenge. But it's not a challenge that I rose up to. So after the movie failed and I started trying to rebuild a, a career, uh, doing some stuff in the in the travel industry, that didn't work too well. Um, and eventually I was looking for a job and I ended up trying to get to where my parents were. My parents had moved from uh, Texas some years before to Louisiana, uh, to Mandeville in Covington, Louisiana. And I, um, I tried to get a job at either New Orleans or Houston. And I could only get a job in Houston, which is... For a Texan, it's not a long drive in New Orleans, but for most of you, it sounds like a really long drive. <laughs> um, but but what had happened in all those years and all that failure, I'd gone from being an atheist to being an agnostic. An agnostic just says, I don't know whether there's God or not. What, do you remember what made help you make help you made that transition? Like, do you remember? Well, what, what yeah, was yeah walk, walking in the catastrophe of my life. <laughs> okay, right? so you were like, "This is just so hard." This is like, you know, like because atheist being an atheist kind of deprives you of any hope, right? It almost leaves you in a nihilistic sense, correct? Well, you know, it can. But see, most people who claim to be atheist, uh, if you if you push their ideas, uh, they don't actually believe that. Remember the old expression: nobody, uh, nobody in a foxhole is an atheist. I mean, <laughs> right. The reality, yeah. the reality is, is that pressures in life, and I'm going to make an argument: the Torah contends that much of the pressure we face in life is not God's hatred for us or God trying to harm us, but in sending humanity away from him in the fall, this exile from him, um, he's not doing that to harm us. He's doing us to teach us one lesson that idols are only idols because that's how you discover ultimately and get your heart ready to discover who God is. In other words, exile, realizing you are cut off from God is the only way ultimately to discover the way back to God. You're not looking for the way back to God unless you realize first that you're cut off. So for me, I mean, um, I, I knew things were wrong by the time I I got back to, to Houston and so forth. Um, and I started going to the church I was raised in. I was there every week. I tried to read the Bible, understood literally none of it, but every time that the, that the, I was supposed to be there, I was there. I didn't know what else to do. I just went, that's what I went back to because I'd, I'd recognized something was wrong and I need to, to focus on it. So uh, I'm 30. I'm approaching 31. We're getting near the Christmas season. And my mother has gone uh, in her illness to where she's lost her sight. And my love for movies uh, came from her. And so she loved to read books and watch movies. Hmm. But when you lose your sight and you're an invalid, um, that's not an option. So I do what every brother did. I did what every brother does. Um, I called up my sister who's still at home. She's only 17 at the time. Um, and and I'm going I'm to call her up and figure out what to get mom for a gift. Now, ironically, the weekend before I did that, I was sitting on the roof of a friend's house and we were putting up uh, Christmas tree lights, his Christmas tree lights. His name mm-hmm. is Dave. And we'd known each other a few years, but we'd never had a spiritual discussion. But he began to ask me, well, why do you do this? And so I didn't know. I said, I, I don't know. It's just what we do. Uh, and, but I knew two things about him. I knew that he knew his Bible and I'd never been around people who knew their Bible, but I also knew that they were the most loving family I've ever been around. Hmm. So we had that discussion. I've got, uh, uh, I go into, I think it's, uh, I don't know, Monday or Tuesday of that week. Uh, I turn around and, and call my baby sister to figure out what kind of gift I can get for my invalid mother mm-hmm. uh, who's now blind. And I call her up and say, Hey, Helen. And, and she stops me 
mid-sentence, it says, uh, mom is dead. Hmm. And what had happened is that she had passed away from a series of illnesses, which they could write a book upon her, but she passed away in her sleep. And suddenly something hit me. It hit me that I had spent from basically the ages of 16 to almost 31, 15 years of my life, chasing after my dream and not taking care uh, in whatever capacity I could my mother. Hmm. And she was gone, and I absolutely had no way to, to fix that. And it overwhelmed me in so many ways. Hmm. Um, that f- The gentleman who had been on the roof, his family um, reached out and, and accompanied me at the graveside burial back in Fort Worth. Um, so, um, and, and, when, uh, and when all that was done, and I was sitting there grieving, not understanding what was going on, um, I recognized that that family was different. And I'd never been to the kind of church they'd been to. So I called up Dave on the first weekend of January of 99. And I said, so uh, I want to go to church with you guys. He said, great. We have Bible study at nine and worship at 1030. I said, oh, Bible study. (laughs) That's for kids, right? I said, all right, I'll go. I'll go. So I went to the church I was raised in at seven when that was done. Mm -hmm. Then I joined them, came to to this church, and I sat in a a medium-sized room I think it's about 20 guys, and they were like 20 to 40 years older than I was. So all your paradigms about the only way that small groups can work is that everybody's the same. I was nothing like these men. Right. Uh, and, and they were older. And I saw something that I'd never seen before. I saw real men actually really pray. Not because there's a football game hmm. or, you know, they're just going through the motions at a meal or something. These men were actually praying because they needed God at work in their families' lives, and they didn't know what to do. Hmm. And I'd never seen that before. Not in earnest. And then um, a gentleman who became my friend later, Bob Eskridge, began to teach the Bible. And I think the lesson was in Proverbs. At this point, I don't remember. But but I opened up the Bible, and I told you I'd spent that last year trying to read the Bible. None of it made yeah. sense. But suddenly, I was like, oh, my goodness. I see what he's talking about. Mm. And then I went downstairs, and I heard a sermon from a gentleman named David Lino, who uh, was originally in Rhodesia, had immigrated to South Africa, and had become a pastor of this church in Houston. And uh, so um, uh, when I think of him, I always think of his South African Rhodesian a- accent. Um, and, and so he's a tremendous, tremendous preacher of God's word. I'd never heard the Bible preached before, truly. I was raised in a tradition where the sermon uh, was, you know, 10 or 15 minutes and basically was, um, you know, be nice to dogs and don't kick your sister or vice versa. <laughs> right. Um, and and so, so here's what happened. I go downstairs for the worship service at 1030. Um, it's obviously very different from what I was raised in, but when the sermon starts, I believe the sermon was about 45 minutes and I had to keep my Bible open to follow every bit of it. I'd never seen that before. And my job was on the floor because for the first time in my entire life, after a year of trying to understand the Bible, things were clicking. I was in a different state. I knew I was, I knew I couldn't repair what I'd done with, with, with my mother or, or had not done. Um, and I saw the word of God being explained to me and I just got passionate. And so for the next few weeks, every time that that church door was open, I was there Hmm. and, um, I wrestled with the Baptist faith and message because I was in a different tradition. And I can remember sitting there one day when I finally realized that Christ had died for me personally, that though I could not fix that, I had, uh, not, I had failed to take care of my mother, that what Christ did in the cross had fixed it and could fix me and all the whole creation and i so i surrendered my life to him i repented Uh, that would be february i guess of 99 i think that's right i don't know forgive me if i get the years wrong now as i get older that gets better (laughs) but later that month i was baptized and i just assumed everybody became a believer just started reading the bible nonstop. 
Right. And I just started reading, and I was afraid to read the Old Testament. So I read the New Testament a few times, and then I forced myself to the Old Testament. And most people think I'm exaggerating, but I'm not I didn't understand anything. I just read it. Yeah. And then I read it again. I think a lot of people still feel that way sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Well, but what's the answer? You just keep reading it. Yeah. And you keep what you do understand, you obey. I was going to say, you one, don't of, understand, one of the things you said was, if it doesn't make sense, keep reading. <laughs> it'll, yeah. it'll explain itself later. Yeah. Yeah. So a good friend of mine who teaches at a um, College of the Ozarks back when I remember he did a chapel sermon uh, one semester and, and, and he had drawn out that idea that we had learned from Salheimer together, which is when you're not sure what the author's answer is, keep reading. Mm. You got to spend time in the text. You got to think about it. And, and, uh, I really believe that, um, God blesses that. And so I just kept reading. I kept reading. And when I'm, when I've been a believer about a year, they were desperate for men to teach. And so unwisely I agreed to teach and God showed grace on me anyway. I got to go to two mission trips that year to Ethiopia, and I got to start working in inner city Houston on some mission activities. And uh, it was in Ethiopia the second time that I realized that God had called me to full-time ministry. And everybody said, hey, don't don't tell them you want to go to full-time ministry because they'll fire you. I was working for a Fortune 400, probably Fortune 100 company. Yeah. Don't tell them you want to go to seminary because they'll fire you. So I told everybody. <laughs> yep. and, uh, and it worked out reasonably well because I was actually able to transfer within that company to a new position when I finally decided and found a way to get to Southeastern, which is where my pastor's son and a few others were. And I really thought I was called to be a missionary. I get to seminary day one, a gentleman named um, Bob Cole starts explaining the book of Isaiah. Cause we're, it's the second part of old Testament. It's a January mm-hmm. of 2002. Uh, and my jaws are on the floor because I realize he's reading in Hebrew and talking in English and explaining the book of Isaiah and it all makes sense. And I'm like, what, what's going on here? Sounds like uh, an experience I had with the old Testament professor at Charleston. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so what's great is I, I turn around and, and uh, I go to the next class and a gentleman uh, who is um, uh, a dean at, at uh, Cedarville, uh, Jason Lee's up there and he starts talking about his church history. He starts talking about the, uh, the reformation. What a great first day of the seminary the book of Isaiah and the Reformation. Yeah. And those two men actually were very helpful. Uh, I began to learn Hebrew under Dr. Cole and uh, Jason Lee was the first one to introduce me directly to Selhammer's work. So Dr. Cole had been Selhammer's student. Mm-hmm. Dr. Lee, unbeknownst to me, uh, was spending all of his time learning from uh, uh, from him. And, and I got introduced to those categories that summer uh, is when I began to read Introduction to Old Testament Theology. And then I finally had a class with Selhammer the following fall and uh, it was third semester Hebrew, and then I took a few other classes in uh, the next semester with an introduction to Old Testament theology. And I and I I'd gone from somebody who wanted to be a missionary to somebody who knew I just didn't know the Bible very well, and I needed to start learning the Bible well so that I could actually be a missionary of God, and not just a missionary of what I think God wants. Absolutely, uh, we all that's struggle. So good. We all struggle with that, and and I you don't have to be a Bible scholar to be a missionary. In fact. My calling is to be a missionary in this particular setting, to make yeah. disciples. Um, and um, some days I do better than others. But, <laughs> Amen. Yeah, but, me too. But, but what's great is I, I had no idea who Salehammer was. When we finished the MDiv, my wife agreed, let's let's see if they'll let me in the PhD. Surprisingly, they let me in the PhD, and I just kept pushing through. Salehammer went away to Gateway, but I just kept studying and kept writing uh, as best I could and taking care of my family. Um, and um, Surprisingly, um, the day after or the day I was 
dubbed Dr. Link and uh, got the funny hat on my head. Uh, um, uh, that was the day after um, an opening at Charleston Southern occurred. I applied wow. and three weeks later. I had the job. That's incredible. Uh, yeah. I spent four, four years looking for a teaching job. I was rejected by every decent university uh, in the conservative realm. One school, uh, a friend of mine accidentally rejected me twice oh. <laughs> for the same position. So uh, that awesome. happens. Uh, but, but I, and I had been rejected by a, a school far away. And I, I turned to my wife and I said, Becky, maybe I'll just teach you and the kids the Bible and that'll have to be enough. Yeah. And then this happened and I've been here now for this. This is the ending of my 10th year. That's that incredible. In. So yeah. that's incredible. What, what I love so much is when you said you were sitting there in the, in the, um, in the church and it just jumped off the page for you. And when I think about that question, when you said, can man live with God, obviously the first passage that comes to my mind is a passage that's near and dear to your heart is Exodus 19. You know, it's, yeah. this, it's this beautiful <laughs> picture of God coming onto the mountain to be with his people and the people, when we read this, we're like, yes, like this is incredible. Like we, they, they're going to dwell with God and the people tremble and they don't want to be near him. Mm-hmm. And, and they, and they back away and they actually just tell Moses, no, you go do it. So explain this, the, the, I don't want to say severity, the significance of Exodus 19. And as the reader, um, why that's such a big moment in the Pentateuch and why it actually propels the rest of the old Testament. So when you read a book, you should ask, why was it written? And Mm -hmm. as I said, a book is meant to solve a problem, or a biblical book is meant to expose a problem and provide its solution. Uh, And the constant problem in the scriptures is man's death and God's presence. Um, And this, this, the reason why this passage is significant is because it shows God approaching humanity and the surprising way that God creates life in a humanity that believes it wants to be close to God, but the reality of facing death in God's presence leads them to not obey and to go into his presence. Now, most of the people who listen to that said, what do you mean Exodus 19? I've never thought about that. I know, mm. I know Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. Yeah, if yeah. we're all right there at that same moment. But the reason why it's so key, Seth, is because in Adam and Eve's story, Genesis 3.15, we're longing for this man, the seed of the woman who will defeat the seed of the serpent. In Abraham's story, we're looking for the seed who will bring us to the land where God dwells. In Genesis 15 in particular, we get this promise that Abraham will not be able to fully enjoy his promise until he's dead and his seed will be humbled 400 years. So Genesis 15 in particular sets us up to know that no man can approach God on his own and live, even Abraham. He's going to have to die. And then, but he's promised you will inherit the land, right? Mm. So you And his seed, his descendants will be down in in, uh, in Egypt, um, and, and that nation will be humbled, and then God will bring them out. So we're, we're reading that, right? So as we see them leave, God's going to keep his promise. We come to a few texts that are important. The first one to help us understand Exodus 19 is probably Exodus chapter 3 and verse 12. And uh, you'll have to forgive me for my reading of this, but uh, I'm going to do it as if I'm teaching to... Um, Absolutely. Folks in, in Chicago or maybe in the South, I'll, I'll decide as I read it. But, you know, God has approached Moses at Mount Sinai at the burning bush. And he's told him, you're going to be the one to, to lead my people out. And Moses has said, who am I? Yep. Then um, to do such a thing, right? And then verse 12 of, of Exodus 3 has two insights that are very important. The first one is the answer for why God can use Moses there 
is not because of who Moses is, but that God will be present with Moses. So it says in verse 12, and he said, for I am with you, or for I will be with you. You can read it either way. But that expression, I am or I will be, will be very key because God's name will emerge out of that. Hmm. And God's name is essentially going to mean that God is with us, and therefore God is good to us. So he says, and, and he said, for I will be with you. And this will be the sign that I sent you. Now, he's at the burning bush, which is a sign, right? Mm. But that's not the sign that God sent him. What will be the sign that God sent him? And it says, and this will be the sign that, that I sent you. When you bring out the people from Egypt, use guys. See, I went, I went Chicago. <laughs> use guys, plural, yeah. <laughs> use guys will serve God on this mountain. Now that becomes very, very critical. Yeah. Because he will not have this final confirming sign until he sees all of God's people on the mountain. That does not happen at Exodus 19. Where you see that happening is at the very end of the book. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 33. Because in Deuteronomy 33, you have this poem where Adam and Israel are dwelling with God, and God's presence, as it had been on Mount Sinai, is now on all the mountains. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's family and the exiled brother's family are there worshiping God. So when, uh, what happens around that? Well, that, that's those are the texts dealing with the death of Moses, right? Hmm. So then you come to Exodus 19 itself, knowing that what we're really waiting for is God and man to come together. And uh, I'll start reading in verse 3, and it, and it says, And Moses went up to God, and uh, and the Lord called to him, from the mountain, saying, Thus you will say to the house of Jacob, you declare to the sons of Israel. Y'all saw, I went southern there, sorry. There you go. Y'all saw what I did to the Egyptians. And I lifted y'all upon the wings of eagles. And I brought y'all to me. So God's actions, by the way, are doing all of that. I, 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 I. And now, listen very carefully. If y'all will surely obey my voice, now, that's important because back in Genesis 26, 5, it was Abraham who obeyed God's voice. And that obeying God's voice in Genesis 26, 5, it's compared to keeping all the law codes. Although clearly Abraham broke a ton of law codes. <laughs> so how did, what does the author mean when it's to obey God's voice? It's like you obey the law codes, though you really did. And the answer to that is Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Abraham believed in God, granted you to him as righteousness. Mm -hmm. Now, for almost everyone who's listening, the next uh, clause is going to be talking about a covenant with a lot of law codes. But what I'm going to argue, and following after Selhammer, I'm not smart enough to come up with this, mm. that what you really have here is God saying to Abraham, if you will obey my voice, or saying to Israel, if you obey my voice like Abraham did, that's what I want. Mm. And you're going to see that Abraham's way of approaching God on a mountain, a la Mount Moriah, mm -hmm. and the connections between Mount Moriah and Mount Sinai are overwhelming. Uh, Abraham was able to take Isaac, his only son, and bring him on the mountain. And though he died, he lived. Hmm. He didn't die, right? Yep. He was due death, but he found life. And he was in God's presence on the mountain where God spoke. Hmm. And God's word called him to die, but also God's word called him to live. All right? So then you come to Mount Sinai, and you're going to see Moses is called to bring Israel on the mountain in this chapter. And that's where it's not going to work out. But he says, and, and y'all will keep my covenant. And y'all will be to me, what? A prized possession from all the peoples, for all the land is mine, verse 6. And y'all will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And you read Peter, and he draws his entire theology of who the church is 
by what Moses is calling Israel to do. Therefore, what the re- what the author of the Torah is calling the reader to be. Royal priesthood. To be a, yeah, a royal priesthood, a kingdom priest and a holy nation. These are the words which you will speak to the sons of Israel. And, and Moses came and he, he called to the elders of his people and he set before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. And all the people answered him together. And they said, everything which the Lord has promised we will do. Now, one of the refraints in Exodus 19 to 24 is that Israel really wants to do this. Mm-hmm. They really do. And they're not insincere. They're just not capable of doing it. The people of God cannot make it on the mountain on their own. And as we're going to see, Moses is insufficient to bring them there. And Moses returned the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you on a thick cloud so that the people will hear when I speak with you. So the conversation between God and Moses will be important. And indeed in you, they will believe forever. That doesn't mean they'll trust Moses to be their savior, but something Moses is going to do is going to endure forever. Mm -hmm. That is, he's going to write scripture. The conversation between God and Moses will become the way that Moses' words in the end will will resonate forever about God. And Moses declared the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and you will sanctify them today and tomorrow, and they will wash their clothes and they will be ready for the third day. By the way, Mount Moriah also talks about on the third day, he saw the place from afar, Mm -hmm. the mountain where God was going to speak to him. Wow. So, and, uh, and, and to be ready for the third day, for on the third day, the Lord will descend before the eyes of all the people upon Mount Sinai, and you will put a boundary around the people. Now, in verse 12 there, it does not say a boundary around the mountain, it's a boundary around the people. Now, later in the chapter, it's a boundary around the mountain, but here, it's a boundary around the people. So, the, the people have to be restrained for a time, as you're going to see. Um, and you'll put a boundary around the people saying, guard yourselves as y'all go up on the mountain. If you're reading a New King James, there's a, there's a, a no or a not in there. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that negation there is, you'll notice it's in italics. Because yeah. it's not there in the Hebrew. It's mm-hmm. there in the Targums, some co- ancient commentaries. But it's not there. So um, he's saying, as y'all go on the mountain, and whoever touches its end, everyone who touches it will surely die. So wait a second. You want me to be on the mountain. And yet, if I touch it, I'm going to die. How's it going to work out? Well, verse 13 becomes key. And uh, uh, and let not a, a hand touch it, for he, it will sure, he will surely be stoned, or will surely have an arrow shot through him, whether an animal or a man, he will not live. And it's the last part of verse 13 is, is clear. When the trumpet blares, they, that's mm. plural, Yeah. they will go on the mountain. So that's obeying God's voice. When God says it's time... Then you go on the mountain. Yeah, that's right. Now, there are some tensions with this reading, but there's a far fewer tensions with this reading than the others. Right. I'll say that. And Moses came down from the mountain to the people, and he sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not draw near to a woman. Why that is the one thing that's mentioned, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's an allusion to Adam and Eve's story. I don't know. Yeah. But at any rate, he does that. And then verse 16 is the San Andreas fault of, of the Torah and therefore of the Bible. Because this is the moment, by looking carefully at Israel's failure, we see our own failures. The reality is is that when you read the Bible, you are encountering the voice of God. And encountering the voice of God, fundamentally, what you are doing is you you are being given a gift. In fact, this gift is asked for at Mount Sinai. This becomes, when you get to Deuteronomy 4 and 5 and Deuteronomy 9, 10, and 18, your very desire to 
um, enjoy God in his word. Israel asked for God's word at Mount Sinai. And when he asked for God's word at Mount Sinai, he also uh, is going to show why he did that. Because the problem of man's death in God's presence will point to, in the end, its solution. So, verse 16 is the key. Hmm. And he says in verse 16, And so it was on the third day when it was morning, there was thunder and lightning, and a heavy cloud was upon the mountain, and the sound of the shofar, or the trumpet, was blaring exceedingly. What should they do? And all the people who were in the camp trembled. Now, they feared God, but their fear of God was not one that obeyed his voice. Yeah. And the way Stillhammer explains this, slightly different than I do, he's going to talk about the fear of, 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 of death versus the fear of God. And I think that's right. Fear of death and fear of the creation is, is, is what's happening here. But it's manifesting itself in the fear of God. In other words, they know that it's God on the mountain. They know that it's God descending, and they know that they're going to die. Hmm. Right. So they have a what I call a bad fear of God, which is ultimately manifest itself in a fear of death and the creation. Right. What you then see is after this moment, the relationship with with uh, Israel and God changes. This is not God throwing it a fit. This is not God moving to plan B. This is God unveiling how he's going to be compassionate uh, to not only Israel, but to all people. And what happens is the relationship is going to keep Israel near God, but not too near. Do you think it's so a, is, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. Do you think it's a metaphorical death or a physical death in that when you look at Christ, he says, when you follow me, you die to yourself. Do you think it's more of a, of a, a dying well, to self or is, is do, you, do you think it's a physical death? So you are born dead and dying. Yeah, yeah. And it's true that they were afraid of actually dying. But we're all born dead and dying because we're all trying to hold on by nature to the creation. Mm. And the creation is itself dead and dying. So how can the creation, which needs God, find life with God? You'll see the problem of death is there, right? Mm -hmm. And so the problem of man's death and God's presence across the Pentateuch becomes this solution. Man's death and God's presence, a sacrifice. Not sacrifices, a sacrifice based upon this moment here will be very, very critical. Just to give you a big picture, yeah. the relationship has changed. And instead of Israel being allowed to go on the mountain, now they have to keep back from the mountain, the boundaries around the mountain. And one of the key moments is um, shows up. And in, in fact, when uh, not only does all the mountain tremble, uh, and, and God, uh, and if you look at the ending of verse 19, it says, Moses spoke, and God answered him with, with a voice. Oh, I'll tell you what that means. That's the Ten Commandments being given. Mm. And the Ten Commandments being given is what? It's an answer to whatever Moses is saying. And I think the book of Psalms helps us think about that. May, uh, several other places. The, the question's not stated, but it looks like the writer of the book of Psalms is, is sitting there saying, who may ascend his holy hill? Mm-hmm. And, and, and indeed, the Ten Commandments are a description, perhaps, and, and this is this is now yeah. speculation. This is not what's clear in the text. Yeah. But whatever it is, it's describing what it would take to approach God, right? Yeah. And none of us meet up to that. So he has a ba- they have a bad fear of God. You get the ten words, the ten commandments. Mm-hmm. Then you revisit that moment, starting in verse eighteen. And so you. Mm-hmm. I was going to say. So you, you look. We we should look at Exodus nineteen as kind of a microcosm, if you will, of the human condition that we're called 
by God in this moment through Christ. We're called by him to come and to die, to dwell with him, to have Mm -hmm. eternal life. And yet, and this is, so there's a book that I read. I don't know if you're familiar with it called the elder Testament. Um, it's, it's Mm -hmm. a book by, it's on my shelf. Sites, yes. sites, seats. I don't know how you yeah, pronounce Christopher it. Christopher Sites, yes. Yep, I, I, Sites. So, in fact, I, you know, I have good friends who have studied under him, and his work is amazing. Yeah, um, it's incredible. Highly recommend it. Yeah, so his book, I called it a real a brain melter. <laughs> so he's, you know, I think he's French-Canadian, yeah. if I remember correctly, and he talks about how the Old Testament, when you say old in French, it, it kind of means outdated. And so he's saying that the, the Old Testament it should be seen as a elder testament, meaning it is a testament to the human condition and God's plan for salvation for man mm-hmm. compared to the New Testament. And so what I loved about that is that it really called me as a, as a Christian to not use the new Testament as a library card into the old Testament, but rather when I look at the old Testament, you see the manifestation of the triune God in God, the word of God and the spirit of God all being manifested. And when I look at Exodus 19 and the reason why, you know, I wanted you on this podcast to kind of describe that is because it was really revolutionary for me as a Christian learning to love the old Testament is to see this shift take place in Exodus 19 where God is now, because the people won't come on the mountain, has now, he himself has still instituted a way. He still makes a way through the Ten Commandments, through the law codes for the people of God to dwell with him. And I just find it so, right. one, you know, when people say the Old Testament God and the New Testament God, they're different, right? Because this Old Testament God is mean because of the law codes. It's like, no, he still instituted a way for the people to dwell with him through the law codes. And, uh, you know, while we can't live up to those law codes, he still is making a way for them to dwell with him. And it's such a beautiful picture. Yeah. So, so what's amazing about it, it many, many different things. He's going to come back to this moment and show us their request for God's word. It's good, good fear of God. And, and you can see the same pattern, bad fear, the, the 10 commandments, God's word, and then a good fear, especially if you read Deuteronomy five, Deuteronomy five follows that pattern and it revisits this moment. So this moment is so central uh, to everything in the Bible because it, 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 it's a snippet into how our failures become the moments to unveil God's mercy. So we talk about uh, this divine simplicity so that all the traits of God are really, you, you don't have a time where he's merciful mm-hmm. and not just. No, his justice and mercy are always together, right? So this is one of those moments, right? And so because this moment is so complex, he revisits it from different angles. And when he does that, Israel's inability to go up leads to the very firmly whereby God will create life with them because they ask for God's word. And they've been hearing God's word. And as terrifying it was, they said, if we continue listening to God, we're going to die. Mm. Let Basically, they say, Moses, let your words be God's word. We'll listen to you and we'll do it. We'll obey it, right? So they asked for God to be present with them by Moses' words. They asked for scripture. And that's how God can have life with his people. But the question is, when you come to this moment, see, there's several different ways that folks are going to read this. They're going to say, God did not mean for them to go on the mountain. I don't think the Hebrew text respects that very well but it it does work together on some levels because it's just kind of for most folks the next stage Mm -hmm. and uh, that's fine if somebody wants to be that but the problem is it's not just the next stage because the very vision at the beginning of exodus 19 he never lets go of them the idea of them being a a a kingdom of priests and a holy nation Mm. and in particular their failure to go up and letting his mercy show up by his word we see his wisdom because he's shepherding them. And and this doubles down because, of course, remember, they were supposed to be on the mountain at the yeah. end. At the end of Exodus 
uh, 24 uh, into 25, Moses is on the mountain, and that's where he sees the pattern that becomes a tabernacle. Yeah. But what's amazing about that is all these illusions, or not illusions, these direct connections back to Mount Moriah show up. Mm-hmm. So as um, as Abraham's hand was ready to go against his son, mm-hmm. there's this little small notion because now you've got Israel on the side of the mountain, or at least the leaders of Israel on the side of the mountain, and Israel beneath it, and then Moses, who's been able to go up, he's come down with them. Mm-hmm. And what you see something is very important that God, it says God did not send out his hand. Mm-hmm. So he showed mercy to them. This is this is the yeah. way you could see his mercy and learn about it. So so just to steal Paul's idea, he calls the Mosaic Covenant a tutor. Wow. And, and what it is, if you will understand how God relates to Israel, how do you do that primarily? You look at how the rest of the book lays it out. How God relates, it, it'll teach you. You spend most of your time under all these laws. Not because the writer wants you to be under the laws, because he shows you the laws are going to leave you in exile. Hmm. But what's the good of exile? That's the place where you realize how far you are from God. You can repent and then find life with God. And then you they get trust the, new, the one who can bring you to God. Then you get the new covenant in Jeremiah when they're in exile. Well, the new covenant, I would argue, is already all over the Pentateuch. Okay. Um, in particular, if you look at what Jeremiah is doing, he's looking at, I told you I wrote on Deuteronomy 29. Yeah. Deuteronomy 29.4 in the English, 29.3 in the Hebrew, defines all humanity's problem as God has not given you a heart to know, two eyes to see, two ears to hear until this day. And then, in that same speech in Deuteronomy 30, he promises that God will circumcise the heart. You have this great discussion of a return. Love that depiction. Great picture. Yeah, and it, but but it's more than a picture. It, it's a it's it's telling you that what yes. you cannot do for yourself, God will do for you. Mm. And this is what enables Romans 10 to link back on Deuteronomy 30. And you have this idea of the Word of God in Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14. And it gets called a commandment. In verse 14, it's called a word. Mm. And what he does is he says, you know, the way that God was with you with Moses at Mount Sinai and at the Red Sea, he's now going to be with you like that in a book. Mm. And so I call that speech Torah's book. Because Love the it. fundamental thing is they asked for at Mount Sinai was God's word. And at the end of Moses' book, you get his book. And God can truly be with you as he was with Israel at the Red Sea and Mount Sinai. God can truly be present with you. And what that means is that he is promising that somebody is coming who can um, who can actually solve the problem. Now, there's more that I could say, particularly if you read Deuteronomy 4 and 5. Deuteronomy 5 seals the case on this. But when you get to Deuteronomy 18... Um, he addresses the day of the assembly one more time. There's a lot of other things we could say. But Deuteronomy 18, you know why it's important. Seth, why is Deuteronomy 18 so important? Oh, Who gets talked about? Come on, uh, you got this, man. You put me on the spot, man. I did put you on the spot. I didn't, pre- I didn't prepare him for that. Offense. Oh, the man. Prophet, you got it. The prophet like Moses. Oh, yeah, the prophet like Moses. Okay, so Deuteronomy 18 is important. And I was actually going to ask you about this because you keep saying a nation of priests. And so for the listener, that the, 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 a priest is the man of God that stands before God on behalf of the people of God. The prophet is the man of God that speaks to the people of God on behalf of God. And the king, prophet, priest, and king, which is who Christ is, the king is is the man of God that leads the people of God for God, right? Is those a good definition? Yeah, that, I mean, those are good ways to explain yeah. it. And, and, and clearly, Adam is a prophet, priest, and yep. king. Moses is a prophet, priest, and yes. king. Yes, and so when he says there's, you know, there's a prophet coming like me, obviously 
to the Jewish reader, they would read that and they would think it was Jonah, but we see Jonah fall, or not Jonah, excuse me, Joshua, and we see Joshua and he falls short. I read Jonah because in a second I got some questions, like speed questions for you and yeah. uh, a former student of yours, but, Eric. But, you're, but you don't miss this point on the prophet like Moses. So listen, there's several ways the Torah talks about yeah. Jesus. The seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the king from the tribe of Judah. He's also the word that Israel asked for at Mount Sinai. Mm-hmm. How does that show up? Well, look at Deuteronomy 18.15. A prophet from amongst you, from your brothers, like me, like Moses, mm-hmm. the Lord, will, your God, will raise up for you. It is to him whom you all should listen. Now, verse 16, so underrated. This is according, wait, wait, what's according to this? Verse 15, the prophet like Moses, whoever he is, is according to this. According to all which you asked from from the Lord your God in Horeb, meaning Mount Sinai, on the day of the assembly, which is the particular term that Moses uses for Exodus 19. So the prophet like Moses is according to what Israel asked for. What did Israel ask for at Mount Sinai? A word. Asked for a word from God. Another way to say this. The prophet like Moses is the word from God. Hmm. John 1, 1, in the beginning exactly. was the word. So uh, let me draw this out. On Horeb, on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not again hear the voice of the Lord uh, my God, and this great fire let me not see any longer, lest I will die. So the problem of man's death in God's presence, right? It is the prophet like Moses who is coming in light of that problem. And so people debate, is this about the office of the prophet, or is this is this about just the Messiah? And the answer is, you have a lot of prophets who look like Moses, mm-hmm. but what problem do they not fix? They're not the word that they ask. So, yeah, they don't. They they don't solve the problem of man's death in God's presence. Yeah, you will spot the one who is the prophet like Moses because he is the one who solves the problem of man's death in God's presence. So what does that mean? Jesus said, "Don't talk about me until I'm raised from the dead." He so the it problem. all fit, yeah, it all fits together really well. So this is my point: is that this whole idea that think about the early church. The early church was all about Jesus, all about the New Covenant, all about the Gospel, and the only book they had was the Old Testament. <laughs> yeah. So Salhammer said it this way, um, the New Testament church was the New Testament church without the New Testament. <laughs> and what yeah. that means is the church you read about in the New Testament book was all about the New Covenant, because it already had a book about it, Wow. the Old Testament. Every time you explain that, it still blows me away. It's like, that's so, why... It, Go ahead. Yeah, no, it's, that, it's all Salhammer. I, I don't get credit for that, right? <laughs> but, but, but I want you to see just how amazing this is. The setting of the Old Testament is the Old Covenant. It is the tutor. It just shows us what does it mean to try to walk with God and fail and still have hope. Hmm. And the answer is bound up. The message is bound up in a person who's coming who can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He can actually change our heart because until somebody can change my heart, I cannot live with God. Wow. So, yeah, that's so good. That's so good. And there's so much that I, we could talk about. I mean, literally, I took a whole class with you about this. You know, major, I took major, I never took Pentateuch with you, but I took major and minor prophets with you. And I loved it because you kept, like you did with Isaiah and Jeremiah, it basically was Pentateuch <laughs> going through major and minor prophets because that's, right. you know, that's what they rely on. Um, but for the last five, 10 minutes, I know you're a busy guy and I, I'm, I'm just honored to have you on this. You know, you were such an influential person to me. We've got some speed questions for you and, I, and I'm going to try and ask okay. some ones that will not take the, the greatest detail. Um, <laughs> so there's the first one. Um, why do you think or how come 
Lot in Genesis lingered from running away from Sodom and Gomorrah? I think, I mean, this is pretty straightforward, but why do you think he lingered? So in Genesis 18 and 19, you have God appearing with men via messengers, three messengers of Abraham. And when you read the Hebrew text, the Masoretic text, when Abraham sees the messengers, he says Adonai with a long A at the end, which means ultimately he recognizes that in some way God is present. Mm. When Lot first sees him, he uses a short A on Adonai, not a long A at the end. And so when does he finally get this? When he is facing death and judgment, that's when the, the Masoretes come in and they put the longer vowel in there. What does that mean? It's in judgment and in death that Lot finally wakes up to what's going on. Mm. And so that story is about how God's uh, word, the, the connection in chapter 19 of Genesis. So you have Abraham pleading for God to show uh, mercy and surely God, when he judges, he won't judge the, the guilty and the innocent the same way. If there's 50 righteous men, will you, will you delay 40, 30, 20? He gets down to 10. So if there's just one righteous man, if there's just one righteous man, then God will delay his judgment. Of course, Lot in and of himself is not righteous. Now, he's mm-hmm. called righteous because there is one righteous man, that is Christ. Mm-hmm. And now, whether you can agree with me, whether that's the claim of the author there, that, but it is an implication of the idea. Right. That the only reason God has shown mercy on us is because there is one righteous mm-hmm. man. Yeah. And, uh, and that allows the life of that righteous man, the life of Christ, the life of God who became man to fill up every part of our lives. That's awesome. So I got, I got two more questions for you. One, this is for a prospective CSU student. He's a high schooler at, at, that's in the student ministry at my church. He asked, what's the atmosphere like at CSU? And I would ask you this, why should a student go to Charleston Southern? That's a great question. You should go to Charleston Southern for a host of reasons. Because you're uh, there. First off, I I absolutely love what I do. I love teaching young people the, the word. You can find um, a lot of places to go to college and get a degree, but I would argue, especially what I try to do with my students, is to be present and to minister to them uh, with God's word. Um, you want to figure out why God has you here. And the reason he has you here, no matter what your degree is, is because he wants you to enjoy him more. Now, if you want to do ministry, I definitely want you to come down here um, because I want you to know God's word well. And we have, to be honest, I think one of the best programs for undergraduates uh, with a a very heavy emphasis upon theology and Bible. Um, And, you know, you can come learn the biblical languages. And and I and we can teach you if you really want to take the time to learn how to interact with the Old Testament, New Testament, and the Hebrew and the Greek. But beyond that, there are places you can do that. I don't know that they all fit together uh, in the, in the same kind of uh, right. symphony that we would. But but beyond that, I really believe in the larger mission of the school. I believe in what we're creating and in, in, uh, what I hope God is creating with the young people and older yeah. people. To come to our school. But I really believe you can spend time with God and you can propel the rest of your life to enjoy him through it. I tell every person I know that's going to Charleston Southern that's a believer, I'm like, listen, what are you majoring in? And they tell me usually, and I'm like, whatever you thought your minor was going to be, don't do it and make it Christian studies. Take your four years. Why wouldn't you take four years of your life to get some sort of theological training that could equip you to, you don't have to be a pastor or a missionary. You just right. know more about the Lord. Like, you know, there's probably people listening to this that for the past hour got a glimpse into what I've, you know, been super blessed to be able to sit through for the past seven years. And you've been sitting it, you had your doctorate in it. You have a so much deeper understanding and you would even admit that there's aspects that you still don't understand. So take four years right. of your collegiate career to learn about the word of God. And I, I love Charleston Southern. I think that that's the best place. So I, uh, 
you know, you know who you are that asked the question. You need to go. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, and hey, tell them to reach out to us. Come on down. So you absolutely. Can. And I tell you, anybody, come on down and see us. He's we a perspective really uh, perspective football player too. He's a linebacker. So he oh, might, good. Well, yeah. uh, he'll learn that I love sports. Uh, that I'm that I'm not capable of being a linebacker. He'll learn yeah. both of those things. <laughs> you got time for one more question? Yes. All right. So this is kind of a a, a hot topic one, um, and I've actually been proposed this question before um, when okay. I've been doing gospel witnessing stuff. Why does God never explicitly um, um, prohib- prohibit polygamy? Okay. In the Old so Testament. The, first off, the presumption of the question is is wrong. But okay. let me let me tell you Go how he how he does that. That's what's presented to me. Why does God why does God so, not prohibit polygamy in the Old Testament? Right, it's a wrong it's a wrong view of what the Torah is. So so let okay. me just tell you that what you're going to see is three ways that God's going to critique sexual sins in the Torah. Not just polygamy, but a whole host of sexual sins. Not just their actions, but the thought of those things, right? Uh, and, and there's three ways, and I'll get to the most important one last. So let's start with the first one. Okay. The first way is when you read those narratives in Genesis, and I mean, sexual sin is everywhere. And, the, and most people want to read Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their families as the heroes. Now, God is the only hero. Mm. And, and what you see is that polygamy... Um, particularly whether it's Abraham with Sarah and Hagar or whether it's um, Jacob with Rachel, Leah and the handmaids, you see the consequences of those sins very, very directly. So the first way, and perhaps uh, I'm not going to say it's the most important, but the one that is most down to earth is is to recognize that the, the Bible is describing those sins, not prescribing. Well, how do I know they're not prescribing it? Because when you get to Leviticus 18 and 20, it's like you're rereading Genesis, but now you have particular law codes that say, don't this, don't do this, don't do that. And, and, and there's so much uh, of, uh, of Leviticus 18, you're like, oh, Jacob did that. Abraham did that, hmm. right? Those are not accidental things. So the law codes that are in there are not to c- create a system for legal implementation in a society, although you could do that for that. It'd be a good source for that. Its purpose is to tell you how to read the narratives. And the narratives help you read the law codes. Hmm. That's why it's one book. It all relates together. So, so the, first, the first way was the narratives themselves build in consequences. And the author's commentary on it is, is I think, reasonably direct, if not very direct. Mm-hmm. The second thing is, in case you missed that point, the law codes take you back and say, hey, in case you, you noticed, Abraham had wonderful faith, but don't model your family after what the, those guys did. <laughs> But the third way, the most important way, in fact, the way that I think Jesus directly answers some of these sexual sins, is he brings us back to Genesis 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. He shows us the way things are, or the way, and the, sorry, the way things should be and will be. The way they are is broken all around us. I mean, sexual <laughs> sin is, is everywhere in our society, but it's always been this way. It's not a new phenomenon. Right. But So he goes back to the Garden of Eden, and he presents man and woman, Adam and Eve. And remember that poem I told you that was so essential. Yeah. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for she came out of man. Mm-hmm. And so the two of them were naked, right? Yeah. And uh, they were one flesh, and therefore a man will forsake his father and his mother. Mm-hmm. By the way, does the Bible teach against incest? Because listen, Adam and Eve's sons mm-hmm. married their sisters. Yeah. Mathematically, that's that was what. So, how do you know the Moses, the author, doesn't want you to do that? Listen, listen to uh, to this again. Therefore, a man will forsake his father and mother. 
you'll leave his father and mother. Mm-hmm. That's a very direct idea saying uh, you don't marry the ones who are with your father and mother. He's mm-hmm. going to cleave himself to his wife. So all kinds of sexual sins are addressed in very different ways. But we get the beauty of sex and marriage. We yeah. get the beauty of it expressed in Genesis 1 and 2 as the union of man and woman is the way that God is expressed. That's why marriage is such a big deal. And connected to that is sex. And notice it's Adam and Eve. It's not Adam and Steve or yeah. Adam and uh, a bunch of other women. It's one yeah. man to one woman. And that also becomes the image whereby at the end of the Torah, we're waiting for this prophet like Moses to bring his people, shall I say, his bride into the land where God dwells. And and, and so that's why when you're reading the New Testament and they're sitting there describing the church as the bride of Christ. Mm-hmm. So there are two institutions where God is to be made most visible. I mean, every part of the creation will ultimately in the end have the glory of God covering it. Mm-hmm. But two institutions are where the life of God can pass on most directly to the, most, to the rest of the creation. Number one is the institution of marriage, one man to one woman. It creates life. It tells you you need to marry the one who is very different from you. And in those differences, life will emerge. There will be protection from without and within. And the future generations can naturally flow out of that. Hmm. If, two men, if two men marry, what's the value of women? Hmm. You can't look at two men and say, oh, there's something for women to do. Well, you say, well, how do I know marriage is for that? Because marriage, whether it's the marriage that you see in Adam and Eve or the marriage of the church, more importantly, that is the way to understand how God saves, how the life of God will show up providing life for every generation. Humanity in marriage is a very significant thing. So so you add to that, that, you know, in in homosexual marriage, whether it's two Mm -hmm. men or two women, the other gender is not needed. Life doesn't naturally flow out of that, you're, you're told to only be attracted to those who are already like you. Hmm. And, and you do all that. And, and, and what you realize is not that people who, who disagree with me on that are bad folks. I have neighbors who are like that. Likewise. No, no issues with them. But, if they're gonna, but, but at the end of the day, is that actually good? No. It's not good for them. It's not good for, for humanity because they are made in God's image. And God has a plan for everybody. So you can look at the marriage of a man and a woman, and no matter who you are, you may not want to be in that circle. You may not desire the opposite gender, uh, which is, I, I think, the natural desires it should be, but you may not desire that. But you can look at the marriage of one, in, one man to one woman, and you can see the inherent value and purpose of all of humanity. Mm-hmm. You can't do that when it's two men marrying. You can't mm-hmm. do that when it's right. two women marrying. Yeah. And it's worse if you get to polygamy, because then you have one man to all these women, and then uh, what's the value of women? Yeah. Because you, you lose uh, you lose Genesis 1 if you're going to allow one man to marry multiple women. Because mm-hmm. it's not only that God created Adam in his image, he created male and female. He created them in his image. Women are image bearers of Christ. They are inherently yes. valuable. And the only way to protect the value of all people in the creation is marriage of one man to one woman. Yeah. If and you I have homosexual I, marriage, half the half the world is inherently not valuable. Right, and I was just going to say that that I think that that gets convoluted and twisted because we've lost what the purpose of sex is. If it's selfish and it's about glorifying the flesh, then it does become an issue of when you say these things, people that are not followers of Christ and don't want to use sex and marriage as a means to glorifying God because God is involved, like you said earlier, with the law codes in every aspect of life. He cares about it. If it's about selfishness and just you being able to please yourself, then that's where you get the questions of, well, what does it matter if people are homosexual? 
sexual? Well, it's because the gift of sex is the giving of self. It's not about the reception of pleasure. While that is a gift that is from God, it's not about, you know, it's about giving out of self rather than you just looking to please yourself. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the, the, the challenge is, is we live in a very sexualized uh, culture and ultimately human identity is being based upon uh, desires and actions. But there's no end game to that that's positive mm. because you can't you cannot have an enduring life if what you do and what you desire of the creation is your primary defining characteristic. Why? Because everything in the creation dies. Mm. What you need is that which lives. Mm. And how will the life of the creator show up in the creation by his word and by his spirit? What we need is to learn how to love the creation by loving the creator. So we don't separate creator from creation. We long for creator coming to creation. And in the creator coming to the creation, suddenly every part of life has intrinsic value. But at the same time, we as fallen men and women, we are going to falter and stumble. And every one of us, once we realize that sin is not just an action, but it's an internal aspect of who we are, we suddenly realize that on our own, none of us can approach God and live. Again, mm-hmm. once we realize we're cut off from God, that's when we can be in position to hear from God. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, have to, we have to recognize our exile from him so that we can trust the one who can bring us to him. Exile leads to return by faith, by faith in the one who can bring us back to him. So you put all those things together and you have you have the the need to recognize that um, God has a purpose in making man and woman different and yet bringing them together. Hmm. It doesn't mean that if you obey God in marriage and um, that everything's going to be easy. In fact, it won't be. All those challenges and then your desire to keep returning to God when you fail, that's where the worship and delight in God can not only minister to you, but minister to others. Hmm. See, one of the key elements of enjoying Christ is learning to repent on a daily basis. Yeah. We begin our life with repentance. We continue with repentance. Repentance is everlasting until we see the face of God in the end. And we talk about our life with Christ, our salvation. And that's what salvation is. Salvation is life with God. And our life with God begins in our justification. It continues in our sanctification. And in the end, when we see God face to face, we either will find life or we won't, right? And we're going to, right? Because God is going to completely change our hearts in Christ. It's only in Christ that that's possible. Yeah. So when when we think about the problem of man's death and God's presence, we think of all these sin issues, sex being a big one. But it applies to anything. At some point, we're going to find out our desires day by day. Even if you've known God for a long time, you, we need to be in a discussion with him about what part of my life do you need to change? What what part of the creation am I putting above you? Because the imagery is when the Torah shows you the problem of man's death and God's presence, it in essence gives you two different ways to think about approaching God. Abraham approaches God with Isaac, the most treasured part of creation, and he tests him. And though he knows his son will die, he knows his son will live. And he sees him out from afar and he says, we will go on, we will worship, and we will return. Hmm. And so he knew that though his son would die, in some way he would live. Hmm. And then God's word is ready. I remember actually before that, let me add, on the way there, 
the father and son talk, Abraham and Isaac says, where, where is the lamb? Uh, God will provide the lamb for himself. He knew. Yeah. When you when you come to Mount Sinai, on the other hand, God at, uh, God tells Moses to take his son, Israel, on the mountain. And that doesn't happen. That's, again, it, it, the point is, is that someone greater than Moses is going to have to bring us into God's presence. And that one is Christ. And, and so for us, we're, we're thinking about how can I approach God and live? And the answer is to let God change your heart by trusting the one who's coming. And the example that you're given of how God can change the heart that then helps you read Israel's story under Moses so well is Abraham approaching Mount Moriah with Isaac. That's so good. That's so good, Dr. Link. I've really appreciated you being on this podcast and it's really just been a blessing to me. And I'm glad people got an insight of what I got to learn over my four years at CSU. And man, I know we could probably go another hour talking about just the, everything about the, the Old Testament, New Testament, the whole deal. So I'm really, really grateful and appreciative, sir. Well, Seth, thank you. We're very proud of you. We're glad to have you as part of our CSU family. And I'm also a Southeastern grad as well, so I'm right. um, glad to have you as a South, part of the Southeastern family as well. Absolutely. And I really want you to know that um, anyone who's listening, that the Word of God will not return void. Mm. Amen. If you will give God time in His Word, and you will obey what you know and trust what you know, then it's amazing over time what He can do in our lives. That's so true. That's, a, that's so true. And I think that's a, a good spot for us to end this podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. And uh, we will look forward to hearing from you about what you thought about this podcast. And we will see you next week.